Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Miles Traer. On today's show, we explore Earth's freshwater systems, from ice sheets to groundwater to monsoons. But believe it or not, large parts of these systems are invisible to the human eye. So today, we try to visualize the invisible. In our first story, we travel to Antarctica to investigate the curious phenomenon of ice streams, which have serious implications for sea level rise. Mike Osborne has the story. Sea level rise is one of the biggest risks we face from global warming. As surface temperatures rise, ice is melting at record rates. But scientists are struggling to understand all the ice sheet dynamics at work, especially in Antarctica. In some places, ice is actually accumulating, and in others, ice loss is more rapid than expected. And, of course, understanding the stability of the ice sheets is vital for any projections of sea level rise. Yeni Sukali is a geophysics professor at Stanford, and she's one of many scientists trying to understand both the observations and theories surrounding ice sheet loss. One of the things that I realized, to, I guess, some surprise, is that the mechanism through which Antarctica's melting is not what we expected it to be. So we really don't know how Antarctica is melting. The Antarctic ice sheet is the largest single mass of ice on Earth. It holds about 10 times the amount of ice on Greenland and covers an area about the size of the U.S. and Mexico combined. It holds over 60% of all fresh water on the planet. Sukali uses models to understand the physics of ice. Antarctica isn't just a stationary block of ice. The ice is always moving and shifting around. Ice accumulates at the surface, and over time, it streams to the ocean like a river of cold, sluggish honey. So satellite data um, and analysis of 
field data suggests that these drainage routes, which we call ice streams, are responsible for 80 to 90 percent of the ice loss from West Antarctica. Um, so these are basically the dominant mechanism through which melting is occurring. Unfortunately, we don't really know why these ice streams even exist. One of the main difficulties here is that the ice isn't just melting on the exterior like a giant ice cube. It's also shifting and flowing in the interior of the ice sheet, which is part of what feeds the ice streams. And the interior dynamics are much more difficult to measure. Antarctica seems to melt from the inside out, so to say. We see on satellites that there are these drainage routes. They look like arteries almost on the satellite images. And these arteries transport ice from the center of the continent to the shore, to the ocean. So that's what I mean by melting from the inside out, is that we're losing ice from the interior of the continent. Um, and that's a problem because we're talking lots of ice at that point. These ice stream arteries are enormous, up to 20 kilometers wide and 150 kilometers long. Now, ice streams are a normal, natural feature of Antarctica. But what's much less clear is whether the rates of flow, the speeds of the ice streams, are faster than normal because of climate change. The ice streams are surrounded by stagnant ice. The pressure and heat created by the weight of the overriding ice causes the ice to deform, making it flow easier. And as the ice flows, it creates friction at the base and around the flanks of the stream. One of the worries is that if the ice flows faster, it could create more frictional heating, leading to additional meltwater, faster ice flow, and overall instability. Right now, scientists don't have a good handle on this feedback loop. And ultimately, our projections of sea level rise depend on these fine-grained details. Without knowing the physics behind this melting process, we can't really answer the question whether Antarctica is melting or not, at least not from a theoretical point of view. Of course, we always have observations and they speak their own language, but I think it is desirable to develop a theory that helps us answer that question. Until we can reconcile theory and observations, it's very hard to know what dynamics are normal and what's being forced by climate change. If there was a fundamental instability in West Antarctica and we were to lose that ice sheet, that will dominate sea level rise more than anything. So the question of whether and how much sea level rise we will have ultimately depends on the future of the ice sheets. All of the sea level rise questions ultimately hinge on what's going to happen with West Antarctica. And I'm afraid we don't quite know that yet, but the data suggests that there's reason to be worried. That was Yeni Sukala with producer Mike Osborne. We now travel from the ice sheets of Antarctica to our groundwater aquifers. What do these aquifers look like? And how are scientists visualizing groundwater movement hundreds of feet below ground? Leslie Chang has the story. Over the past few decades, there's been growing concern about water availability across the western U.S. Recent dry conditions are especially impactful, considering that this region produces a huge percentage of the country's food. But low rain and snowfall mean that districts are being forced to use more groundwater instead of surface streams and reservoirs. When we look at the planet, 97% of all liquid fresh water is groundwater. So there's a lot of groundwater there that can be used. 
In the U.S., groundwater accounts for 23% of the freshwater supply. In California, that number is 40%. So 40% of the freshwater used in California in an average year comes from groundwater. Now, during dry years or during periods of drought, that number can get closer to 60%. This is Rosemary Knight. She's a Stanford geophysicist who is developing methods to better understand our groundwater resources. One of the biggest difficulties here is that we don't actually know how much water our aquifers hold. After all, we can't put on x-ray goggles and actually see the water disappearing from beneath our feet. Well, I always compare the challenges we face in managing and understanding our groundwater supply to the challenges doctors were facing 100 years ago. Groundwater is hidden from view. We need information about a part of the planet we cannot see or directly sample. And 100 years ago, the medical profession was facing the same challenge. They needed to see into the human body. So what happened? Along came x-rays. Along came medical imaging. And that has completely revolutionized our approach to human health. We need to advance the use of earth imaging methods so that earth imaging can play the same critical role in ensuring the health of our groundwater systems that medical imaging plays in ensuring human health. Imaging aquifers, which can be hundreds of feet or more below ground, isn't easy. You could go out and drill tens of thousands of water wells, but they'd have to be really deep, and your information about the aquifer would still be pretty spotty. It turns out that one of the best ways to look into the Earth is to look down from space. We decided to use a satellite-based imaging method, and it's called INSAR, Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. And what INSAR does is to map out the change in deformation of the land surface. So here's how this works. A groundwater aquifer is a little like a balloon. As we pull water out of the balloon, it deflates, and the land surface above it, all the rocks and soil and sediment, that all drops down too. And as water re-enters the aquifer, it re-inflates, and the land surface above rises back up. These land surface deformations are really subtle, on the order of centimeters. But amazingly, INSAR allows scientists to visualize these tiny changes. It basically works like an MRI for the Earth. Across the U.S., the majority of groundwater goes towards irrigating crops. Hundreds of millions of gallons per day ensure that our agricultural system is up and running. So Rosemary, along with graduate student Jess Reeves, chose an important agricultural region to explore our aquifers, a region called the San Luis Valley in Colorado. What we wanted to do, what Jess did during her Ph.D., was to say, how can we use that up and down of the land surface that INSAR is measuring and accurately quantify what's happening in our groundwater aquifers? Because of local regulations, San Luis Valley is kind of a unique testbed for this kind of work. Unlike many other places, laws here prevent farmers from overdrawing groundwater. This helps ensure that the aquifer can recharge after each growing season. So the ground is moving up and down every year, seasonally, as water is extracted and then refilled naturally. If it weren't for these laws, the ground would likely just keep dropping. Rosemary and Jess were trying to measure these small up-and-down motions. The problem is that the satellites need to see the ground in order to make accurate measurements. But the valley is covered in crops, which makes measurements of the centimeter-scale deformations way more difficult. They needed to find a way to see through the blanket of potatoes, lettuce, and barley— And after two years of looking into the problem, Jess approached Rosemary with a solution. She came into my office one day, I can't remember when, 
She had an image on her laptop, and it was circular patterns from the San Luis Valley. And in these circles, the data quality was very bad, but the gaps between all the circles were lit up. There was great quality data showing up in all these gaps between all these circles. We were looking at the patterns from the center pivot irrigation system. So in all the circles, crops were growing. The gaps in between where we had high-quality data were because those were parts that weren't being irrigated. There were no crops growing. And so that gave us points throughout the San Luis Valley where we could see through the crops and into the confined aquifers. Based on the areas where there were no crops growing, Rosemary and Jess were able to analyze the up-and-down movements of the land surface of the San Luis Valley. They calibrated the movement of the Earth's surface to the groundwater pressure, what hydrologists call the hydraulic head. As a result, they got a much clearer understanding of what was going on underground, how much water was entering and leaving the aquifer. By combining the data with some modeling techniques, the researchers are able to better estimate groundwater levels from the 1990s all the way up through to the present day. We also need to be able to look into the future and predict head so that we can assess some proactive management techniques. What would happen if we reduced pumping here? What would happen if we managed to get more water into the aquifer here? So we need enough information about the aquifer in this area, the water levels in this area, so that we can come up with a model that allows us to be predictive in our decision-making. While this study focused on San Luis Valley, similar techniques can be used to assess groundwater resources everywhere. In fact, recent studies by NASA have found some alarming signals in the INSAR data in California. We've been working in the San Luis Valley, but there are people from the Jet Propulsion Lab who have been doing similar INSAR work in California. They haven't been linking it so much to getting an accurate estimate of head changes, but what they've been seeing in their INSAR data is very significant subsidence in regions of California due to sustained groundwater withdrawal. The drought creates an added urgency to Rosemary's work of visualizing our aquifers, and these promising imaging techniques will become even more important as our growing global population requires more and more water. It just seems stunning to me that we're not taking that next step and making these data readily available for groundwater management. We have a serious, serious problem in groundwater management in this country, and we should be throwing all the science at it that we can. That was Rosemary Knight with producer Leslie Chang. Rosemary and Jess's work would not have been possible without the help of Stanford geophysicist Howard Zebker. Howard is an expert in radar remote sensing, and he also works closely with NASA on a few other projects. To close out today's show, we now return to Convos with Cow, which are conversations about the current state of climate science with our friend and climate scientist, Cowstub Thermali. This week, our producer Mike Osborne chatted with Cow about his work in India on monsoons. He was recently part of the International Ocean Discovery Program, or IODP. IODP scientists try to understand ancient climates, geology, and biota by collecting seafloor sediments and rocks. Here's Cow and Mike. Cow stuff. Mike, how's it going? <laughs> it's going well. How are you doing? Doing well, man. So, okay, here's what I wanted to ask you about. 
What were you doing in India on the IODP cruise? I actually don't really know much about the underlying science questions. Right. So I was on Expedition 353, and the expedition was called Indian Monsoon Rainfall. Uh, and basically, the idea was to drill in the Bay of Bengal, which is the largest bay in the world, and the bay is to the eastern side of the Indian subcontinent. And the idea is to take advantage of these sediments that have been accumulating right near the armpit of India. And they want to reconstruct how much outflow there has been over the last several thousand years to several million years future. So, you know, you said several million years, but you know, when, did, when did India start colliding with, it, with Asia? And, and when did we start building up the Himalayas? When did this sort of monsoon as we know it begin to set up? What, what is the geologic history here? Nobody really knows. But the ballpark is somewhere around either 40 million years ago or around 20 million years ago. Around 40 and, or 20, is that what you said? Yeah, somewhere there. And really, we want to understand not just when uh, you know India rammed into Asia. That, I think, we do know to a relatively good degree of precision. But really, when the monsoon turned on. And, when, and re- really, like whether the monsoon turned on simultaneously with when these mountains were built. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that, you know... The idea, as it's always been presented to me, is that you have sort of a large land sea breeze so that you have this temperature gradient between the ocean and, and the continent, and that is like the fuel for the monsoon, and that gradient gets more, well, I don't know. I, actually, wh- what do the mountains have to do with the monsoon? Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I don't know the answer to that. Well, you're absolutely right that the sort of the land sea breeze on a large continental scale sets up the fuel for the monsoon. But how that fuel, how that fire sustained is because of the high Himalayas, which when the winds go across the continent, they get pushed up from the foothills of the Himalaya all the way up, and you basically start convection processes. You say Himalaya? Himalaya, yeah. Uh, A lot of Americans say Himalaya. You'd know better than we would. I mean, I'm sorry to be getting it wrong. No, no worries. Himalaya, interesting story, actually means abode of snow. Himalaya no, and Alea is abode. Oh. There you go. See, the thing is, if it comes out of my mouth that way, Himalaya, it sounds sort of smug. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, like, I have to actually do it the incorrect American way. Otherwise, I sound like a douche. Yeah, it was but... like uh, uh, John Oliver had a segment recently where he said, the worst type of person is someone who goes to Spain for vacation for a month and comes back and says, Barcelona Totally. No, it's the exact same thing. All right, so so the the formation of the Himalaya has something to do with the, with the strength of convection. We know approximately when India starts slamming into Asia and and when the Himalaya begin to form. But I mean, you said ballpark twenty million or something, right? Right. Like like I I guess I still don't quite understand like the major questions and 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 more importantly, I think how we begin taking you know this feature that has existed for roughly twenty million years and begin to understand its dynamics today in the context of global warming. Absolutely, uh, and those are all very good but open questions that we intend to shed some light on. Yeah. And really, between the 40 and 20 years, I think what you're looking at is, what was, you know, we know roughly when the Himalayas started building up, and we know roughly, so we should know when roughly the monsoon turned on. And I think that we do, but really we don't know when the monsoon ramped up. When you are really looking at when the Himalayas were built, and you want to connect that quantitatively to when precipitation 
especially seasonal rainfall, which is what the monsoon has started, it becomes a little tough. And so we're going to try and shed light on that because we have sediments that go back 60 million years ago or so. So we're going to cover that entire time period. So we want to coordinate and correlate it with events that are going on globally. Because, you know, that's not an isolated part of the globe. There's multiple different things going on. Northern Hemisphere glaciation. There's Panama Canal opening up, gateway. A lot of things are happening. So we want to be able to see whether, was it just the Himalayas or what really turned the switch on so that you had this huge seasonal rainfall. Right, and the whole Panama Canal connection is communication between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Yeah, between the oceans. But actually, let's get back to Northern Hemisphere glaciation for a second, though, because what do we know about the monsoon during the Pleistocene and during glacial interglacial cycles over the last two million years? Right. So when we're looking at the Pleistocene or the last ice age, we have an idea. We think that the monsoon was dramatically decreased. So that the summer monsoon, amount of rainfall over India was actually drastically less than what it is right now. We think it was a lot weaker? We do think it was a lot weaker. But at the same time, the other flip side to the summer monsoon is the winter monsoon, which is when the temperature gradients reverse and the winds reverse and you rain out over the ocean. And uh, people believe that the winter monsoon was actually stronger during the last glacial mass. So the winter monsoon does play a pretty important societal role. But for the majority of Indian society and India and the Indian subcontinent, the summer monsoon is absolutely critical. Well, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about this week, man? Not much, man. All I want to say is that I have a new blog post on the heat wave in India, and uh, I speculate that maybe, considering the El Nino that might be coming up, we might actually see a a really big heat wave next year as well Wow! in India. Okay. Not a prediction, but but a hypothesis. I love it. Dude, thank you for making the time for this as always, and uh, and, and we'll uh, we'll holler at you again soon. Thank you so much, Mike. Talk uh, to you later. Later, Cal. That was Cow Stub Thermali from the University of Texas at Austin. You can find Cow on Twitter at holy underscore cow. That's K-A-U. That's all for this week's show. Next time on the podcast... Cassava is an amazing crop. You could call it a climate change ready crop. So it grows incredibly well under drought conditions. It does really well under heat conditions. But the issue is, is that it makes cyanide. So every time I enter that hole where the seeds are over, I'm full of respect and it's just fantastic to think about. And it, it is one of the biodiversity hotspots on, in the world, at least when it comes to crop diversity. I don't think there's any room in the world that is so biologically diverse. That's next time on Generation Anthropocene. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Leslie Chang, and me, Miles Traer. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden, This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. If you enjoy our show, please leave us a comment on iTunes. Give us a rating, subscribe, anything you can do really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.